Well, good morning, church. What a beautiful day it is outside. Can't wait to, I mean, I'm excited to preach. I'm always excited to preach, but really excited to, to spend some time outside today. To the glory of God, amen? Amen. Uh, man, I, I want to start off this morning um, and, uh, by just thanking, thanking you guys. Um, this, is, this, is, this is my last Sunday preaching for a little while, and, uh, and I've been going since, I mean, I think since like almost like Sunday after Thanksgiving or so. Um, and so I, I appreciate you guys bearing with, with me. And, uh, and, and for, for just honestly, the, the overwhelming amount of encouragement many of you guys have, have given over the past few months. Um, you guys have been very encouraging. And, uh, you know, as, as any one of these guys will tell you uh, who, who preaches, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. And, um, and so it's, it's kind of a vulnerable place sometimes to be standing here when you just kind of like, you've been working all week and to, to, to preach and it's kind of just you up here and, and, and here's the fruit of the labor. Here it is right here. And so uh, it, it can be encouraging at times. It can be um, discouraging at times. Um, but this church body makes it very encouraging. So thank you for, um, thank you for your, your bearing with, with me these, these past few months. And so uh, next week, I know you'll, you'll be excited uh, that, that James is going to be preaching for a few weeks, and then Tom's going to come up, and then we're going to have Matt coming after that. And so um, it, it's exciting to, to really be able to, to hear the diversity of gifts and diversity of personalities and perspectives and, and things of that nature, all for one purpose, to bring glory to Christ and to edify the body. And so, um, so we're looking forward to that. So hopefully you've got your Bibles. We're, gonna, uh, we're finishing our two-year stint in Luke 6. Um, <laughs> no, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna finish Luke 6 today. Uh, we're going to be in verses 43 through 49. And, and I'm just telling you right now, I'm going to get through it. So uh, my goal isn't that it's going to be too long, but that's always my goal. And I'm not good at that. Um, but, but we're, we're going to make it through today. We're not, we're not stretching this another week. So um, as, as I think about, as, as I think about, my, my, my sermon today in, in our text, I, I, I couldn't help but think about many of the ways in which things in our culture are continually being redefined. I mean, like everything. It's like the new norm. It's like every day. I can't keep up with definitions. Like, you might as well take the dictionary anymore and just throw it in the trash. Use, use it to balance the chairs. Like, I, I don't even know. Words are constantly being changed. Concepts are, 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 are being changed. Things are being changed. Like, I mean, it wasn't, but, but, but a few years ago where, where our culture is wanting to, um, you know, redefine marriage from God's, you know, God-ordained marriage. Marriage is, is a God thing. Marriage and, and the Bible clearly is between one man and one woman, period. Amen? But our, our culture wants to say that, that marriage is just whatever we want it to be. Two women, two men, whatever. No commitment, whatever. Um, our, our culture redefines what it is to be a man, redefines what it is to be a woman, I can just say, you know, whatever, whatever you choose to be, whatever you feel like being, whatever you want to self-proclaim, then be it. Versus what God said, he made them what? Man and woman. God did that. 
God's declaration, not your declaration. This isn't your definition to, to change. And we like fast forward to like 2020 and, or 2019, 2020, and it's like we're re- even redefining things such as like what racism is. And, you're, and it's like I had a historic view of, of what racism was typically defined as. And now we fast forward to 2020 and it means something completely different. I can't keep up with all these definitions and all the way they're changing. But man feels free to change them however he wants. And there's one, more than anything, that's probably got me more upset um, than anything over the past year. And, and, and it's something that's happened through the pandemic. And it was actually through Costco, something that they redefined. There was, there, there was through the pandemic, and at the start of the pandemic, you know, all the grocery stores, you know, they had limited inventory, they had, they had limited you know, operating hours, and people were going there, and they're buying up stuff, toilet paper. We all, we all remember that. And, I, and one of the places that I went was, was, was Costco, and I'd wait out in lines, and wait, you know, way down the street, and then we'd finally get in. But you'd go in, and it was fine. I usually had most of the stuff that I wanted. But the, the, the missing element at Costco that frustrated me the most was that there was no samples. <laughs> like, I'm like, that is the best part of Costco. Maybe it's the fact that you can return something like two years later and they don't ask any questions. Maybe that's the best part for some of you, but for me, it's the samples. I love going for the samples. I don't care what it is, I'm going to sample it, I'm going to try it. But when I went at the start of the pandemic, there was no samples. But a few months went by, and like Forbes puts out this, this article, and many other people put out this article that, that samples are coming back at Costco. So I was like, my people, this is awesome. So like I, I was excited that now we got the inventory back, you know, we got toilet paper back, we got bottled water back. That's great, but we're getting samples back. And then you know what? I walk into Costco, and I walk in and I see that beautiful silver cart. And I see a, a person standing there, and I see, I see the glass. Okay, I get the glass. But you know what? There's no samples. There's no samples. There's like a bro standing there with a box of frozen pizza explaining about the frozen pizza. I'm like, this is not a sample. This is not a sample. See, a sample, you can call it a sample all you want. This is a sales pitch. This isn't a sample. I mean, this really is no different than the fact that it's sitting there inside of the, fr- of the freezer right there in front of my face that I can walk by the same way. The only difference is you're holding it. But a sample involves me tasting it. A sample involves me experiencing it. A sample involves me enjoying it, okay? And deciding at that point, based on my experience, whether or not that I would choose to buy it or choose to move on to the next sample. How dare they redefine what a sample is? If us going forward, that is the definition of sample. Well, Joe, friends, I've really got to start to reconsider my relationship with Costco. We are a culture that redefines things continually. We'll just call it whatever we want. And never more evident, more important 
is the way that the word Christian has been redefined. The word evangelical has been defined. And anybody, anybody, you go, you go walk around the streets and, and, and you go to Publix, you go to Costco, you go to the park. I mean, almost anybody is going to tell you that they're a Christian. They don't love Christ. There's no fruit. They're not involved with the local church body. There's no desire to read God's word. There's, 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 there's nothing. Well, they plainly can slap this label on themselves as Christian, maybe because, I don't know, maybe because they're white, or maybe because they're born in the South, maybe because their grandparents went to church, maybe because they went to, you know, Christian school or Catholic school or they were homeschooled or whatever, but because I'm here, I can just slap the name Christian, probably because I believe in some vague concept of a God somewhere, whatever that means. Or I'm an evangelical because I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. No, no real commitment or no, no real definition attached to that. Just It's a label. It's a word. But plenty of people are just attached to such concepts. And they really believe it. They really buy it. The word means nothing. Nothing. A few weeks ago, Bill and I, it's my last week, so I'll give you one more Chick-fil-A example. We're at work. You know, this, apparently we messed up some guy's coffee. Just, you know, we make mistakes, right? This guy comes in, and he comes to speak with Brother Brandon here. Brandon's on the front counter. He's, how can I serve you? This guy, I mean, he starts cussing Brandon out. I mean, expletive, 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 angry, yelling, top of his lungs, rage type of, like, you just killed my sister, I'm here for you type of rage. And Brandon's like, you need to get out. So this guy starts screaming, yelling, he's going to mess everybody up in our restaurant. And so all of a sudden, all the guys, we start approaching this guy. You need to get out of the restaurant. You're endangering our team, you're threatening our team. And this guy starts, you know, he's still, you know, puffing up, and he takes his hot coffee. It was hot, at least. He takes his hot coffee, and he throws it up against the window. He just walks out, angry. Bill and I, we, we bring the guy outside. We start talking to him. We calm him down, and, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. We, we, start, we, we start sharing the gospel with him, which isn't what we do every time. I'm not saying that to puff myself up. I'm telling you to get to this point of the story. The point, the guy goes, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer. I don't know if this was guy was a believer or not. It's not my place to judge whether he's a believer or not. I would hate for you guys to see me on my worst day. But man, it's hard pressed to find to, to see a guy that went through that and to think the first thing for my mind to think that he was a believer. The first thing I thought was this guy was demon possessed. The first thing I thought was this guy needs the Lord, and that's why Bill and I we. We shared the gospel with them there, and we try to show the grace and mercy of Christ. But it's very easy in a moment for us all to just to attach this label to us, like, I'm a Christian, and have no clue what it means. I believe in this text this morning, as, he, as Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, Jesus is concluding this greatest sermon ever preached. And he really is going to point to really... How can you know if you're a Christian? 
What does it look like to be a Christian? What does it look like to really actually be a disciple of Christ? Is there evidence? How do you know? Well, let's turn to God's word and look at that. As we've made our way to Luke 6, verse 43. Follow along as I read, please. And Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. May God bless the reading of his word. My main point this morning is this. The way we live our lives is the clearest indicator of who we worship. The way that we live our lives is the clearest indicator of who we worship. So what do we do? How do we, how do we actually determine who we worship? First, we, there's a call, point one, to examine your fruit. Examine your fruit. Jesus makes this remark in, in verse 43. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. He gives us two trees here. He gives us a good tree, and he gives us a bad tree. Is this this word for good? It's, it's the Greek word kalos, and, and, and that word, it, it can mean like good as in beneficial, but really the better word is, is a functioning or, or, a, or a healthy tree. A tree that is healthy and functioning in the right manner, you know what it does? It bears fruit. Imagine that. You know, you, you get these beautiful trees out here, and it's springtime, and, and, and as, as it gets warmer, as we get rain, these, these April showers turn into May flowers, and so this, the, the, we're going to see flowers blooming, we're going to see trees, and we're going to see leaves popping up on this tree that fell off during the cold. Because why? Because it's a healthy tree, because Roger Seelock takes care of it. And it's healthy. It's good. You're going to see, you're going to see vegetation for me. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. And you go up to, then you go up to Mercy or Apple Orchards in September and October, and you know what you see on those beautiful trees that are well-maintained throughout the year? You see apples. And you take your kids up there and, and, and you go get these little baskets and you go, you pick beautiful, delicious apples and pay way too much for them, but you have a good time doing it and you get a picture for Instagram and then you come home and you eat it. But they're beautiful because these beautiful trees, these good trees, these healthy, functioning trees, you know what they do? Without fail? Without fail. Healthy, functioning trees bear fruit. They do. That's what Jesus says. So it, the defining attribute of the good tree, it doesn't bear bad fruit, but it bears 
good fruit. We get this idea of the good man bearing fruit, or the good person bearing fruit, or the godly man bearing fruit, or the Christian bearing fruit, or that, those who would say they have faith in Christ Jesus bearing fruit, all throughout God's Word. All throughout God's Word. This is Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, Epistles, all of it. Those who follow God bear fruit. James 2, faith without works is what? Dead. You're the dead tree. You say you have faith, some kind of like verbal faith, some kind of just little verbal proclamation. Dead. That's it. No fruit, no love for Christ, no works, no obedience, no fear of the Lord. Dead. That is not saving faith. That is not saving faith. 1 John 2 5 through 6. By this we know that we are in him. We are God's people. We're saved by him. We're in Christ. By this we know. We want evidence of your faith, Christian. You doubt your faith ever. You want evidence. 1 John 2, 5 through 6. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Fruit. Obedience. 1 John 3. Three, John goes again. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God. Again, evidence, evidence, evidence. John in his epistle, as Doug has pointed out, he keeps like pointing out through the, this, this short little epistle, this is how you know. This is how you know. This is how you know. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who's the good tree? Who's the bad tree? Who's the son of God? Who's the son of the devil? Who's saved? Who's not saved? Who's justified? Who's not justified? You can. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. You're not. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. It's fruit. We could go on and on. We go to the prophets and. We read in the prophets, you know, Jesus angry at the Israelites because here they come and they're bringing their offerings. They're doing their sacrifices. And Jesus says, you honor me with your lips. You honor me. You, you might have this outward form of piety and, and, you, and, and, you, and you follow your religious ritual, but your hearts are far from me. No fruit. No fruit. No love for the Lord. No true obedience. You cannot have true obedience without love of the Lord. You can't. It's impossible. You can't have true, godly, spirit-empowered fruit without a love for the Lord. Impossible. We'll talk about that more in a second. You've got the good tree, the healthy, functioning tree. The defining attribute of this good tree is that it doesn't bear bad fruit, but good fruit. And what's the kind of good fruit that probably Jesus has in mind here? The fruit demonstrated in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is preaching to his disciples. This is, remember, this is one sermon. I know I've made it a lot of sermons, but Jesus, it was, this was one sermon, man. This would have been an intense sermon. But here, Jesus, this, this good fruit in context, as we think back to the beginning of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's this idea of, of being poor in spirit. 
that we're, that we're humble. Humble before a holy God. Not proud, not beating our chest, looking upon ourselves and thinking how great we are, how great our religion is, how great our intellect is, and how just grateful God should be that, that we would choose him. No, a true brokenness in our spirit. A true hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not a hunger and thirst for the things of this world. Not a hunger for popularity. Not a hunger to make much of ourselves. Not a, not, not a hunger for our brand. Not a hunger for things. But a hunger and thirst for righteousness to be holy, which God calls us to. A desire for that. A real desire. A true desire. Not a conjured up desire. Not I've got to force myself to try to want to be holy. But a real desire to be holy. Real a real weeping, and a real brokenness, and a real conviction of your sin. Not a condemnation. Not, I sin, therefore I think I'm going to hell constantly. But a true conviction of sin. But Jesus talks then about a pers- being persecuted because of Christ. That we live our lives in such a way that we follow Christ, we worship Christ, we obey what he's called us to, which, by the way, for the disciples then, and even the disciples now, is to go and to preach the word and to preach the gospel, which, you know what? It's offensive to the world. You go preach the gospel, the world isn't going to pat you on the back. They're not. They're not going to love you. They didn't love Jesus. They're not going to love you. But Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. You live a life that results in persecution. Other fruit, you, you, you love your enemies. You love those that wrong you. you. You do good to them. You think about the people in your life that, that, that wrong you, and, and yeah, you may get frustrated, you know, but, but you love them, you do good to them, you don't stop, you don't, you don't just remove yourself from the relationship, you don't just say, when all these people wrong me, so I'm just going to remove myself as if, as if you know, I'm going to harm them that way. No, Jesus says a Christian a follower of Jesus forgives. A follower of Jesus does good to those and prays for those and blesses those and shows mercy to those and is generous to those that wrong them. Fruit. Fruit. And then other fruit, that, that we are people that, li- that we are living free from this type of self-righteous judgmentalism. That we recognize our own depravity. We recognize the mercy of God. Which, when we do that, like we cannot possibly stand in a position of self-righteous judgmentalism when we recognize our own depravity and the need for God's mercy. It's impossible. It's inconsistent. It's stupid. But in the midst of all of that, we get this taking the log out of our own eye because, let's be honest, none of us like all of us in here, almost all of us, would proclaim to be a Christian. And almost all of us would proclaim to know the Lord. But all of us, we look at the Sermon on the Mount, and not one of us stands here and says, Nailed it! Got it! That's me, baby! Not one. And not one of these pieces of fruit that I've identified, that Jesus identifies here in Luke chapter 6, do any of us say that we do perfectly? None of us. 
That's why I think this last piece of fruit is that, that we, when we do sin, we live lives of ongoing repentance. We're not people who, who are perfect. We're not. We are people who are constantly repenting. We are constantly people who are confessing our sin to the Lord. Because we do have hearts that do desire righteousness, do desire to be holy, do desire to honor the Lord. And as, as Doug preached a, a little while ago in, in 1 John, that when we confess our sins, he is already faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So therefore we can confess our sins. As he said, that, you know, show me someone who loves the Lord, I'll show you someone who's constantly confessing their sin. If we say we are without sin, we make God a liar, and the truth is not in us. So it's not a call to perfection here, but it is a call to repentance. The Christian isn't constantly perfect, but they are constantly repenting before the Lord. Good fruit. Bearing fruit. But then he points to the bad tree. This bad is, it's not healthy, it's not functioning. The defining attribute is this. It doesn't bear good fruit. It bears bad fruit. It does bear bad fruit. And what kind of bad fruit in context? I think it's, you find yourself, going back again to the Sermon on the Mount, I think he's pointing to people like the Pharisees here, that Jesus gets into more detail in Matthew, and he'll get into more detail about the Pharisees throughout Luke. But listen, this, this bad fruit, I think in the context here, is that you find your satisfaction and your happiness in the things of this world. Like this world is all it is for you. Your money, your stuff, your fame, your notoriety. All of it. Your education, whatever that is. All about you. All about trying to find your satisfaction and happiness in the things of this world. No thought of God. No thought of what he's called you to do. No call of what he's called you to be. No worshiping him. No loving him. No obeying him. But you're just like, what can satisfy my belly today? What, what can the world offer me? You are apathetic towards righteousness. You'll take it or leave it. I'm sure you can, you can kind of put on this facade when we get around the people of the church and we can kind of fake it for a couple hours each week. But you have no desire for righteousness. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm really not. Again, already admitted, none of us are perfect. But when confronted with your sin, and maybe you sit here in these seats, and you've sat here for years maybe, and you, and you see, you know, Christ's call to holiness for his people, and you're confronted with sin that you need to repent of, that you need to confess, and you just harden your heart and don't care, and you come and you take the Lord's Supper, and you leave, and you're just on your merry way. That's a hardness of heart. That's bad fruit. That's not good. That's a bad tree. You live the type of life where the world has no problems with your life. No problems with your belief. No problems with any of your convictions. No problems with anything that you say. Because you don't ever say anything that Christ would say. You don't do anything that Christ would do. You don't preach like the apostles. You don't preach like John the Baptist. You don't preach like Jesus Christ. They're fine with that. They're fine with you coming in here on a Sunday morning. They're fine with that. But don't confront the culture about repentance. You, other bad fruit, you only love those that love you. You only forgive those that, that make much of you. 
You only give to those that give to you. No mercy. You hold bitterness. You hold grudges. Your life is marked by a self-righteous judgmentalism because you think that you are the standard of righteousness. And, and you think that the world revolves around you. And you think that you're the one who's always constantly being wrong and never wronging anybody yourself. And your life, therefore, is marked by hypocrisy. Bad fruit. Jesus here says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. They're known by their fruit. And so, Christian, listen, this isn't a call for you to be thinking about your neighbor. This isn't a call for you to be thinking about the preacher. This isn't a call for you to be thinking about your mother-in-law or your father-in-law or anybody else. This is in the context of Jesus just finishing with the idea of taking the log out of your own eye. Then you can focus on the speck that's in your brothers right after that. And so, Christian, maybe you call yourself a Christian. Look at your life. Look at your fruit. You look at these two lists, and I don't know how many of them you wrote down or not, but you look at the good fruit and you look at the bad fruit. Christians will bear good fruit. Unbelievers will bear bad fruit. And, and Christian, if, if or, or friend, if, if your life is marked by nothing but bad fruit, there should be a point in which perhaps, perhaps, you might not be a Christian. I saw, I know, you, you hate to say that. And I'm not saying you're not, but I am saying there's a point in which you must look at your life. Because God's word is clear. And we can try to push that, that, that thought away, and we can try to put some giant asterisks and always try to clarify the statement. But like God's word is so abundantly clear. No fruit, no Christian. Don't be mad at me for saying that. That's what Jesus says. That's what John says. That's what Isaiah says. That's what Paul says. It's clear. Examine your fruit. Point two, examine your heart. Examine your heart. Because the fruit actually does this. You know what it does? The reason we have the fruit, it pours forth from the heart. Because the fruit tells us about the heart. The fruit gives us a mirror, I mean, a window into our heart. Because Jesus says this, he says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our, our, our hope is not in this. The reason we examine our works is not this. Our, our hope is not in our works. It's not. It's not like I've conjured up a few good works so I, I, I can have hope. No, 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 no. The, 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 the reason we look at the works, the reason we look at the fruit, is because it actually tells us a lot about our heart. It tells us about what we love, what we treasure, who we worship, who we bow to, who we really are. That's the thing. 
We're not going to get to heaven because we're good enough. We're not going to get to heaven and be with God for all of eternity and be justified because of our works. We're not. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Period. But Jesus says this, the good person, and this good is a different word than the good tree. This is agathos. This is morally good, morally acceptable. Different word for good, two different types of good. One one was like a, a functioning, healthy tree. This one is actually a morally right, good person. Good. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. So we, Jesus takes it a little step further. So we're going to look at the tree, we're going to look at the fruit, and let's take it a step deeper. The reason that the person produces fruit is because of the treasure of his heart. Not just out of his heart, but the treasure of his heart. His heart treasures something. His heart treasures something good. His heart values something good. His heart value, he, he looks at something and he sees it as supremely good. And the natural response, the natural overflowing response to something viewed as so good, so perfect, so worth pursuing, so much gratitude towards, is fruit. It's good fruit. It's good deeds. It's good work. Good works, good deeds for the Christian are a natural overflow of who we are in Christ. It's a natural response to the grace that we've received in Christ Jesus. We don't conjure it up. If we're seeing bad fruit, we consider our heart. We check our heart. It should, it should involve some introspection on us and on our part. Listen, again, this, this idea of, of, of the heart connected with obedience and a heart for God connected with obedience, again, it's all throughout the Bible. I'll give you a few. First John 5, 3. For this is the love of God. This is the love of God. That we what? We keep his commandments. And his commandments, as John says, are not burdensome. It's not just some giant burden that we've got to do. That, that like we, 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 we read the Sermon on the Mount and we just feel all beat up. Because like, man, I, I could never do that. That's just so hard. The Christian looks and he says, I, I love the Lord, and, and, and I, I desire that. Like, I, I know I'm not perfect, but I desire the righteousness of Christ. I do. Oh, and I know I struggle, and I know I need to repent, but, but I know Christ is faithful, and he's going to sanctify us, and he's going to make us more like Christ by, by the power of the Spirit. So, Lord, I see this. Make me like Christ. Make me like Christ. The daily prayer of the Christian is, make me like Christ. Why? Because I love Christ. I want to be like Christ. Because I treasure Christ. Because I worship Christ. Because I see Christ is good and he's holy. And out of that heart, we desire to obey. Psalm 112 and Psalm 1, they say this, blessed is the man, they delight in the law of the Lord. They delight in obedience. Why do they delight in the law? Because they delight in the king. They delight in the king. They don't just delight in the rules. They delight in the lawgiver, the Lord, because he's good, because he's holy, because he's gracious, because he's merciful. And those who have received the king's mercy desire to please the king. The defining aspect of the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, the Lord 
takes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. A new heart that desires new things. Desires to please him. That does love him. That desires obedience. Where does obedience come from? Where does true obedience come from? A heart that has been shaped by the Lord, that has been given by the Lord, that is convicted by the Lord. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. But not because of himself, but because of the Lord. Flip side, the second type of person is an evil person. And you know what they do? They produce evil. And guess where their evil is produced from? Their heart. Their heart of stone. Quickly, we, we, we see this, John 8, 42 through 47. Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they're coming to Jesus, and they're appealing to their heritage. They're appealing to their ethnicity. They're, they're appealing to the fact that they, you know, they've created these rules, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, they said, and, they, and, and they're at the moment condemning Jesus, calling out Jesus, uh, uh, um, accusing him of doing the works of demons. And Jesus said to them in John 8, 42 to 47, he says, if God were your father, Pharisees, who you're appealing, you're saying that God's your father, and he's not. But if he was, you would love me. You would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus points to these Pharisees. And listen, they put up this front... They looked like morally good people. They weren't like, you know, filthy type of like scumbag people who were doing all this immoral stuff, obviously. But they were hypocrites. And they didn't love the Lord. And they did not worship the one true God, Jesus Christ. They condemned him. They rejected him. They rebelled against him. And Jesus says, you know why you do that? You know why you have a heart that is prideful? You know why you have a heart that... That, that wants to reject Christ, and, and you live out of that character because your father is of the devil. Sometimes you've got to tell a person their father is of the devil. I, I can't make that judgment, but Jesus did. Jesus gets to the point of it. Your father is of the devil. Your father is the devil, and you're going to do what your father does. You're going to be just like your daddy. You're going to be hateful. You're going to condemn. You're going to lie. There's not any truth in you. You're just like him. Your heart's just like his. The evil person, out of the evil treasure of his heart, naturally produces evil. Those who have been given a new heart, our natural position in Christ is to pursue holiness and sanctification. So Christian, go walk in who you are in Christ. Go walk in who he's empowered you to be. Go walk in who he's called you to be out of your heart. But evil person, you cannot do this. You will continue to walk against God and rebel against God. And you can sit here in church and you can hear the commandments. You can, you can hear the call to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And you know what you will do? You will harden your heart. 
Because, friends, if that is you, if you are hardening your heart towards Christ, if you are rebelling against him, there's a good chance, friend, that your father is the devil. And there is no truth in you. And you will experience the wrath of God. Examine your heart. But Jesus here gives us an example of how our actions are a direct reflection of our heart. He says, by what? He, he's, he says there in, uh, in verse 45, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he kind of gives us an example here. Uh, eventually, what is in your heart, your desires, it will come out of your mouth. Just to give you an example. The things... Specifically, the things that, that we say. We often think that the things that we say don't actually represent us. We can lie. We can exaggerate to make ourselves look good. To make others look bad. We can gossip. We can tell a crude joke. We can go on and on and on. And, and when we act as if like the things that we say don't represent us. They don't represent my, I just, I just, it was just a joke, you know, I'm just funny. We all do it. We all do it. We all exaggerate. Sometimes we're all dishonest a bit. But let's not act, church, as if that's not representing the desire of our heart in that moment. Let's, let's not act as if that doesn't kind of, isn't a reflection of what our heart's desiring in the moment. How do we speak to our children? How do we speak to him? Are we yelling at him? Are we just screaming at them because they frustrate us? How do we speak to our spouses? How do we speak about our friends? Specifically, how do we speak about our friends when they're not listening? When we get together with the guys, are there jokes that we would tell that, that, that maybe we wouldn't tell in, 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 to the church as a whole? How do we speak about our enemies? How do we speak to our enemies? How's our tone? How's our attitude? Jesus says the way that we do these things, the way that we speak, and he's just giving the example of speaking. It is a reflection of our heart. It is a reflection on what's the inside. And in that moment, we don't just brush it away. There's a moment where you just got to say, we, we, we must repent. We must confess our sin to Christ and repent. But, our, but our, it's not just our words that tell us what's inside. I mean, we, we can talk about a lot of other things that speak about what's in our heart. Our bank account speaks. Our time, the way we spend our time, it speaks. Our actions speak. Our lives speak. Our, our ledger, this giant ledger of rights and wrongs against us, it speaks how long it is. It speaks. Unforgiveness, it speaks. It speaks of your heart. Your passions, what you pursue daily, it speaks what's in your heart. Your search history on the internet, it speaks. Your thoughts and your desires, they speak. And you know what they're speaking? They're saying, this is my heart. This is my desire. And in that moment, Christian, we have an opportunity when confronted to say, forgive me, Lord, which he will. And change me, Lord, which he will. And empower me to walk in righteousness, which he will. Or harden my heart. Can you continue walking in sin? 
The good person, out of the good treasure of their heart, produces good. The evil person, out of the evil treasure of their heart, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We examine our fruit because, really, it causes us to examine our heart. But then we examine our heart, really, because, third, it causes us to examine our foundation. Examine our foundation. Jesus, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Wow, that really gets at the heart of it, doesn't it? Church, will, will we be a people? Will we be a people, church, that come to Christ, that proclaim his lordship? We sing about it. We sing about his greatness. We sing these songs. We proclaim it with our mouths. We come and we we. We sit under the Word, and, and, and we sit here, and we even take notes, and we listen. Because we say we love Jesus, because we say that we call Him Lord, we declare His holiness, we partake of the elements, and we, we acknowledge, and we say we do this in remembrance of Him, and, and we come, and we participate in baptism, and we do all this stuff, and we acknowledge His authority, we say we believe in Sola Scriptura, we do that, we create this whole system and we do all, or we orient our lives around it and then not obey his teaching. Like, not submit to the word of God. Not obey what he's called us to. Not to believe what he said to believe. That's absolutely crazy to Jesus. He's like, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I tell you. It's inconsistent. It's irrational. You're using a word that you don't know what it means, and you're redefining it for your own purpose. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Amen. 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 The question is, what does it mean to understand the lordship of Christ? It's not that you're somehow making him Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord of all. There's not a point in which you somehow, I'm going to make Jesus king. Jesus is king. Whether you like it or not, he is king. But those who are in Christ Jesus bow the knee, acknowledge him as Lord, and desire to worship him as Lord, desire to obey him as Lord, and desire for the whole world to know that he is Lord. That is a Christian. It's not just some verbal proclamation, Jesus is Lord. You can go down all the interstates and you can see Jesus is Lord. And anybody can say I'm a Christian. 
Anybody can say I'm a disciple of Jesus. Anybody can learn this verbiage. You know what Jesus says? I don't so much care about your verbiage. I don't care about your verbiage. I care about your heart. And what I see is this. People calling me Lord, Lord, but they don't obey me. No desire for holiness. No desire for righteousness. Because they don't desire me. They don't desire the Lord. They don't desire Christ. You might just look at me and you think I'm a good teacher. No, not just a good teacher. Not just a good man. Not just a moral man. But the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That is the Christ Jesus that we worship, church. And when we see that, when we see his glory, we see his holiness, we fear him. We fear him, we do. We see his mercy, we love him. We praise him, we worship him, but we understand his lordship. We do obey him, we desire to. It's like not a, it's not just, you know, like a little pick and choose book. It's not a buffet where I'm going to take, I'll take a little bit of loving Jesus and, and I'll take maybe it's a smidge of obeying Jesus, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off on the fear of Jesus. No, when we see Jesus, it's like all these things at once, but we can praise him and not stand in condemnation because he's good. He's good. So we worship him and when we obey him. 2 John 1 9 says this. 2 John 1 9 says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Everyone who goes on ahead does not abide, uh, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. There's no such thing as a Christian who does not desire to obey Christ. None. You will not find that in the Bible. You might conjure up these ideas in your own head, but it is inconsistent with the teaching of Christ. We submit to Christ. We love Christ. Not out of duty, but out of joy. Because of his grace. Because of who he is. Faith is not just some check a box. We're used to checking boxes, aren't we? We acknowledge our consent by checking boxes all the time. You open up a new iPhone, and you know what you're going to do? It's going to power up, and then you're going to check a, like There's going to be this long list of things that you've got to scroll up that you're agreeing to. And then you just press click. And how many of you have ever read the whole thing? Jordan says he has, but most of us haven't. We're used to getting boxes all the time, and we click. I understand. We, we're used to getting boxes all the time, and we, and, we, and we just agree. I set up a new Nintendo Switch account for my son last night. You know what it had? A list of like all these things. I just want to play. I wanted to play Nintendo Switch. Agree. Boom. Move on. Start playing. And many of us treat faith that way. My little verbal proclamation. I don't understand who Christ is, what he did, but you know, I can walk, I'll say a prayer, consent. Look at what Christ is calling his people to, church. It's not just some little verbal proclamation, it's not just one little check on a consent box. It's a life that desires to follow Christ and to worship him, to obey him. That is faith. 
But in America, you know, Ligonier, they put out yearly a state of theology where they interview thousands of people each year to see kind of where the, the evangelical state is in, in America. When it comes to submitting to the teaching of Christ and the Lordship of, of Christ, l- listen to this church. For evangel- I'm talking evangelicals here. Those who would proclaim to be an evangelical. The most useless and worthless term in the entire world. In our country. 63% of evangelicals agree that God accepts the worship of all religions. 63%. 51% agree that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 66% of evangelicals disagree that all sin deserves eternal damnation. 48% of evangelicals don't believe that the Bible is completely true. 40% of evangelicals disagree that the Bible has the authority to tell us what we must do. 40% of evangelicals agree that the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. 54% of evangelicals agree that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. And each one of these things is contrary to the Word of God. Oh, but they can check the box evangelicals. Because they've redefined the term for their own purposes. But Jesus says in Luke 6, 47, everyone who hears, comes to me and hears my words and does them, submits to Christ, worships Christ, trusts in Christ, repents of your sin and trusts in Christ for salvation alone, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man, he's building a house. And when he built that house, he dug deep and he laid the foundation deep. He laid it on the rock. Stable foundation. A good foundation. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. No foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. Two houses, two different building styles, a good building style, bad building style. Both experience a stream. Both experience different results. The first house the house built with a, th- a good foundation. I don't know much about home building. Don't know much about construction at all. But I know this. The foundation of a house is the most important part of that house. They built this giant hospital across the street from my restaurant. You know what they did? It's giant, it's huge. They dug really, 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 really deep in the ground. 
and laid a really, really, really good foundation that supports this giant building. They didn't just start laying bricks on the grass. The foundation is the most important aspect here. Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't give any other example of the differences of these houses except for the foundation. You know, you can think of the Pharisees, and, and there were these people. They built up their own little self-righteousness. This, like, because you don't see the foundation, but you can kind of see some of the, you can see the windows, you can see the roof, you can see the door, all this other stuff. They, they built up their own little system of righteousness where maybe you look at the house and you think, that's a pretty well-built house. It's pretty good. It's a nice-looking house. You know, it's got some shiplap. You know, it's, it, it's got that, what's that sink called? The, you know, the, the big sink with the, you know, I don't know what it's called. Kaylee knows, but I don't know. Yeah, what? Farmhouse sink, yeah, that's good. Good-looking house. Looks good. But when is it actually tested where, if it was a well-built house? When the storm comes. When the rain comes. When the flood comes. And Jesus gives these two examples here. That there's one house who has a good foundation. It's a well-built house, and the flood's going to come, and it stands. And there's another house that comes, and the flood's going to come, and it falls immediately. It doesn't stand a chance. And scholars argue here whether this is talking about the trials of life or whether this is talking about the ultimate judgment of God. This flood here. And I would say it's both. In Matthew, Jesus points to... Luke, Luke points out more of an eschatological aspect of the man who builds his house without the foundation, ultimately eschato, eschato, eschatologically will fall immediately. You will not stand in the judgment. We see that in, in, in uh, Psalm 1. The Lord knows the, ray, the way of the righteous, but, but, but the unrighteous, the sinner, will not stand in the judgment. He will not. If your foundation is built on self-righteousness, if your foundation is built upon yourself and your own righteousness, your own, your own way of living, your own standard, your own definition of faith, your own definition of God, who Jesus is, you will not stand at the judgment. You will receive the wrath of God and go to hell. You will. That is a warning. It is a promise. And the God who, who promised Adam and Eve that, he would, that thousands of years later he would send the lamb to, to take away the punishment of their sin there in the garden, he brought that promise to pass. He called his shot from thousands of years away, and he did it. He is a trustworthy God. He's an honest God. He's a sovereign God. He's a powerful God. And when he says that you will not stand when he comes to judge, but that you will receive his wrath. Trust us, friends, that he will bring the promise to pass. Reject Christ. You will not stand. Please repent of your sin. Trust in Christ. He's merciful to forgive you. He's, he's gracious to save you. And he's powerful to change you, to give you a new heart. He will. He will. You do not need to fall. Like Noah said, there's a flood coming, and there is a flood coming. The flood of the wrath of God, it is coming. 
And if you are not in Christ Jesus, you will not survive it. Oh, but friends, those who are in Christ, like, like Noah was in the ark, and like the house here that, that has a solid foundation, if you are in Christ, you have nothing to worry about. Nothing. Oh, but we look forward to that day, the day that the prophets describe as the great and the terrible day of God, the day of God's wrath, that we look forward to that day because we are in Christ. No punishment, no condemnation. Straight joy, not because we earned it, but because we are in Christ. We have a joyful eternity ahead of us, church. But you know what? We also have a joyful moment today because we can celebrate. We've been forgiven. We've been changed. We've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. Therefore, church, in light of this beautiful reality, may we walk in righteousness. May we walk in joyful obedience. May we submit to what Christ has called us to. May we not harden our hearts. Oh, friends, if you have unrepentant sin today, confess it to the Lord. Confess it. Repent. Walk in righteousness. Oh, he's gracious to forgive you. He's gracious to change you. He's a good God and a good father, ready to welcome a child back home with open arms. Do not harden your hearts, but trust in Christ today. Amen.